We're going to be in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. You can turn there in your own Bibles, or it's printed for you in the bulletin, or you can open up your little smartphones and touch your ESV app there, which I highly recommend the ESV app. It's free. You can get that the, I'm not sure if you can get that on Android or not, but you can definitely get it on an iPhone. While you're turning there, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would open this word up to us, this difficult word, this, this uh, section of scripture, Lord, that is intimidating. We pray that you would help us to know more of the gospel. Help us to reflect more of your glory in our hearts and lives because of our encounter with your word. How would you do this by your Holy Spirit? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. My boys and girls, make sure you have your copy of the Children's Bulletin. You have your own um, translation in there we'll be referring to. So to get us into the mind of this particular passage, it's an interesting passage. I want you to think of an extremely important football game. Like it's a big, huge championship bowl game, let's say. Maybe your favorite team, you know, Clemson or USC. Well, okay, big, big bowl game, let's be honest. Clemson, the big bowl game, and against somebody else, and they're five points down. There's hardly any time left on the clock. Receiver gets open in the end zone. Quarterback rears back, throws a beautiful throw. Jumping catch, six points on the board. Clock ends, game one, yeah! And people are going, wow, what an incredible throw! Other people who are more like, they like receivers, like, what are you talking about? Any, a monkey can throw a ball. That was an amazing catch. You see him weave in and out and jump up. It's a good throw. It's a good catch. And the rest of us are like, seriously? Let's just say it was a good play, right? And the people who like quarterbacks tend to focus on the throw. The people who like receivers tend to focus on the catch. Who's right? Well, it depends on your perspective of the same play. Now, where am I going with this? That is very much like the New Testament presentation of the gospel. Much of the New Testament is written by guys who are just overwhelmed at the graciousness of God to sinners. They are all about making sure that we don't think we earn our salvation at all. So they are all about grace and faith and faith and faith. But there are guys like James... And a couple other guys as well, but James is the big one, who are all about grace, absolutely. But they're also about seeing that grace work out in our life. They're interested in the works that Christians do after salvation. And so on the surface, it looks like they're all about works, works, works. But if you step back, it's not that they're saying great catch, great throw. No, they're saying great salvation, but from a different perspective than normal. So again, who's right? They both are. Grace and works go together to prove that we have so great a salvation. Now, for some of you, I have your attention now because works is a bad word, especially in Protestant churches. But we're going to see here that James shows us the beauty of works from a biblical perspective. Let's remember where we've been. James has told us that we are to be doers of the word. We're supposed to live out the reality of our faith. The last passage we were in talked about the sin of partiality, how that comes inside the church, but doers of the word don't put up with that. 
Instead, when we realize that we deserve God's discrimination, but instead He discriminated against Christ and punished Him so we could be accepted, that destroys our tendency to partiality. And so based on that example of works that happened after salvation, James dives in here to what it probably is the most controversial passage in his books. Would you look with me at James chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 14 through 26. This is God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, But you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word. It's easy to see why Martin Luther hated the book of James, isn't it? That verse 24 is very shocking, isn't it? But let's remember who James is. Who's he writing to? James is writing to a Jewish congregation who has come to believe Christ is the Messiah. There there are some Gentiles in there, but primarily from the way the book is written, we can tell this is to a Jewish background audience. They know their Old Testament. They understand a lot of stuff about God. And it seems like he's not really talking about persecution very much, as a lot of New Testament epistles do. So he seems to be writing to a congregation that is theologically informed and very comfortable. And they're susceptible to partiality, to making distinctions among themselves. And so now he concentrates on them as a theologically grounded church folk. Basically people like us who attend church, who know most of the stuff, who have orthodox beliefs. And so he's talking to them, telling them that's great, but there's also a necessity of works involved. So this text is to churched people, people who know their theology who live moral lives, let's say. But if you step back, they have nothing distinctively Christian in their behavior or in their lives. James says, real faith is proved by works of mercy and obedience. They are the fruit of belief 
in the gospel. <clears throat> if I could sum it up for you in one sentence, boys and girls, you might want to write this one down. You, today, as you're taking your mom out for lunch, you want to discuss the sermon, you can discuss this point and see if we got there or not. Here, here it is. Gospel transformation is about the whole person, not just what we say or do. Again, the gospel is about the whole person, not just saying magic words or doing special things. See, what James wants us to see today is that regardless of what we confess, we have not been transformed by the gospel if it hasn't changed our life. So let's jump right in. First thing he talks to us about here is a dead orthodoxy. Look with me at this very first verse, uh, verse 14. James just says it. He says, look, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the way the Greek is written, the text expects a negative answer. No. This is scary because James says right here, there is a faith that can't save. There is a faith that lacks works that can't save us. Now, works here, what's he talking about? Again, in the context of where we've been, in the context of verse 13 right before this, this is specifically showing mercy. These are not the ritual religious works that Paul speaks of that most of us are more familiar with. When we hear the word works, we think of religious things. This is James talking about just works of mercy. If you remember right before this in verse 13, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And then he immediately says, are you doing works of mercy? See, faith that is totally doctrinal, purely doctrinal alone, with no actions, is a sham. It's totally useless and worthless. And he gives us a great example to help us understand this. Let's look at the uh, kids' translations together of verses 15 and 16. See this, this example he gives us. He says this. He says, if you see a beggar with no clothes or food... And the only thing you do is say, good luck, God bless you. But you don't give them food or clothes. What good is that? See, James, is he grabs a very specific religious activity to, t- to say to somebody, go in peace, was an orthodox religious thing that they said in that ancient culture. It would be very much like some churches, you know, they say, the Lord be with you. And the congregation says, and also with you. There's nothing wrong with that. And so James is saying, look, if you see somebody hungry and clothed, you go, the Lord be with you, and you walk on and don't give them any food. He asks, what in the world is the good of that? I mean, isn't that manifestly obvious that you haven't done anything but make yourself feel better by saying that? Often what James is telling us here is that we use religious language as a cover for non-action. To excuse ourselves not to get involved. Here's how Charles Spurgeon put it. I didn't make a slide out of this. I just want you to hear this one. This is great. Spurgeon said this. He said, if you want to give a hungry man a tract, wrap it up in a sandwich. Or let's, let's put it into our... I don't know about you, but I haven't seen a beggar on the streets of Orangeburg. They're there, I know, but I haven't walked by one. Let's put it in a different context. If you want to leave your waiter a tract, don't do it instead of a tip. They're a poor waiter earning less than minimum wage. They live on tips. Give them a generous tip and a tract. 
See, real faith, what James says, is not aloof from the rest of life. It is right in there in the nitty-gritty of Monday through Thursday. That's real faith. And so he says in verse 17, look at me, verse 17, he says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, dead there in the Greek, it means dead. It means what you think it does. Our belief in the gospel is dead if it doesn't change the way we live. We could put it this way. Works are the breath of a living body of faith. Remember, we're supposed to be doers of the word. Remember how we saw what that means? Actually, literally, it translates, we're supposed to be poets of the logos. Poets of the reality that Jesus Christ is bringing. We're the ones who help people connect with that reality. And it's not just our words, it's our lives. We are living out the ultimate reality that is coming when the Lord makes all things new. That's what it means to be a doer of the word. We demonstrate that. What that means is that we have integrity. They would say the word shalom, peace. But not the absence of conflict. It's peace as being whole. Having a wholesomeness about you. Being integrous. In other words, you take belief and you take action and you put them together and that's biblical peace. And he says, that's who we are. That's who we're supposed to be. Now this is uncomfortable. So James, being a good pastor, he anticipates some hypothetical churched person saying, well, you know, not everybody has faith. They're kind of like spiritual gifts. Some people have great faith. Some people do works of mercy. It's an either or, right? And James says no in verse 18. He says faith is shown in works. It's not an either or. You can't just say, well, we're we're more about beliefs and theology. Well, we're more about works and, and doing stuff. I mean, do you see the struggle of American churches right there in that verse? You have your conservative, evangelical, theological churches. These are faith, right? We write beliefs. We understand the gospel. We do these things. Are these the kind of churches that most people know when these guys are, they're always out doing stuff in the community. They're messing stuff up. Not really. That's not what we're known for, is it? On the other side, you have your churches that are about, well, beliefs are kind of whatever. Church should be about actions and doing things. Let's serve the poor. Let's do fruit soup kitchens. Let's do this stuff. See, and these are your more typical liberal mainline churches. They're works churches. Are they known for being, man, they're so strict orthodox. They get the gospel. They're so theologically grounded. No. It's like James is looking to the future and saying these two kinds of churches and saying, stop, don't do that. And we think that way, don't we? If we see a church that's really involved in the community, that's doing the stuff that we like to call you know, social justice, kind of mm, suspiciously, we tend to step back and like question their theology, don't we? We kind of assume that, oh, they must be more liberal because they're doing stuff. See, deep down we know that there's faith and works and we're much more comfortable with, let's be right about our belief. Let's say the right things. Let's sing the right things. Let's pray the right things. And well, those others who are really called, I mean, you know, that, that's their gift. They're really good at working. Let's let, them, let's let them do that stuff. James comes and says, no. These beliefs are proved true when you get out there and do stuff. 
the world can't see our faith if we don't have good deeds to go with it. The world can't see our faith if we don't have good deeds to go with it. Let's give you an application of this. The session has been praying for the opportunity to make a bigger impact in Orangeburg. We believe that it's not about us making, getting all these new ideas. Like, Lord, what are you doing in Orangeburg? How can we be part of it? Would you, what are you doing? How can we get behind that? And we were so excited when this school next door came to us and said, we are growing. We've, we don't have any more space. We love being out here in the country. Could we possibly rent part of your building? This, the, the immediate thought was, whoa, are you kidding me? A predominantly white church full of families that most of Orangeburg knows little about. We could actually demonstrate how the gospel changes people by hosting a school of minority boys from broken homes. What an amazing opportunity. It's going to be messy. It's going to be gritty. It's going to have some parts that need to be greased up and and work a little bit better. There's going to be some friction. Oh, but it's going to be so good for the gospel and so good for Orangeburg because real faith is shown in real messy acts of love and mercy. And that's not just me talking. Here's how a, a godlier, smarter, definitely, pastor than I did, John Calvin, about 500 years, years ago, here's how he said it. He said, look, unless your faith brings forth fruits, I deny that you have any faith. In other words, he's too eloquent and polite to say it basically john calvin is saying put up or shut up and we need to hear that don't we because those of us who consider ourselves more theologically grounded more orthodox more conservative we are very quick to excuse ourselves from being involved in the community because we can pass a theology test and god's okay with that We, we have right beliefs That's what really matters. After all, I mean, all this is going to burn and God's going to take us to heaven anyway. See, but James won't let us do that. Look with me at verse 19. He grounds us here. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, behind this verse, if you look on the rest of the slide there, to the Jewish mind, they had a catechism. Just like most Presbyterians who've been raised in the church or are very serious about it, I can, you know, I can say to you, what is the chief end of man? And most of you can say man's chief end is to glorify God and join him forever. They too had a little confession of faith right there in Deuteronomy 6. In fact, in the Hebrew text, it's got bigger letters to set it apart. It's called the Shema. And this is what they would, they would recite to each other. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So when James says, you believe that God is one, he's grabbing on to their catechism question and saying, you believe this? Guess what? So do the demons. It's not about belief. It's not about having good theology. James says good theology is not saving faith. Demons have good theology. See, those of us in a theologically grounded Presbyterian denomination, we must be aware of this danger of having accurate theology, of having a very mental faith, it can end up being only a verbal exercise. How do we know? It's not. How do we know it's more than that? James says, by the presence of works, of mercy and obedience in our life. Because gospel transformation is about the whole person, not just what we say 
And not just what we do, but about the whole person having biblical peace where beliefs and actions are united. Regardless of what we confess, if we haven't been transformed by the gospel, then it won't change our life. But if we have, our life will be changed. We may accurately confess truth, but if it doesn't drive us to greater obedience, if it doesn't drive us towards acts of mercy with our neighbors, it's dead orthodoxy. But empowered by the gospel, the power of God for salvation, we can have instead of a dead orthodoxy, we can have a living faith. James wants God's people to live in peace, this peaceful integrity, this wholeness of living out our faith, being doers of the word. And so he continues in this passage, he shows us how worthless it is to say you believe something, but it doesn't change your life. So he goes to the story of Abraham. You remember the story of Abraham? (laughs) Excuse me. Abraham is chosen by God for no reason except God chose him. He's given these promises of numerous upon numerous descendants. He believed those promises. And his faith was counted as righteousness. He believed. Later, as the years went on, he finally had a child, Isaac, whom God told him to sacrifice as a test, which Abraham then passed. So that's the background. Now look with me again at verses 21 through 23, the the Abraham story. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now, if you notice what James does there, he reverses the order of what actually happened. Abraham was, in, in real life time, Abraham was declared righteous by God when he believed. But then 40 years later, he demonstrated that righteousness when he obeyed to sacrifice Isaac. So declared came first, then he was demonstrated when he believed. See, in both of those ideas being declared and demonstrated are in that word justify. I apologize for how tedious this might be, but this is a hard passage. This is one of those passages that if you've ever had a conversation with someone who likes to talk about the contradictions in Scripture, they're going to go here. And this is one that if you're not prepared, they're going to pull out James 2.24 and it's going to contradict the whole book of Romans and you're going to go, can we call my pastor? Okay, so... Here's what we're talking about. I want to show you the biblical idea of justify here. Let's look at this together, okay? The word justified. We don't use this word outside of church world. What did it mean to them? What does it mean today? The word justified, it means to declare righteous or just. We got that one. Here's the one we don't emphasize as much, which is just as much part of the word. To vindicate at judgment. You say to your child, do you respect me? Yes, I respect you. They declare it. They're at their friend's house, and their friend wants to get on the. Their friend doesn't have parental controls on the internet like you do, and they want to go to some websites, and they know that they're not supposed to go to those websites, and so they say, "My dad has told me not to go to those things. I'm not going to." Their respect of you has just been vindicated. They proved it. It was declared in words, and it was vindicated by works. That's justified. Both of those are in the same word. So we tend to emphasize the declaration part. We are righteous, and we should do that. But 
we underemphasize the vindication aspect of justification. You see, the vindication is a beautiful promise of the gospel. It means this, that one day, someday, we will stand in judgment before God. And we will be vindicated because of the righteousness of Christ. Because of His works, we will be vindicated. That's why James says justified. Abraham was justified by works. Because Abraham, 40 years later when he obeyed, he vindicated his faith. He declared it was true. He demonstrated it. God's declaration of righteousness was proved by his works. Abraham's faith and works went together to show he was justified. Let me ask it a different way. If Abraham, 40 years later, God said, you are righteous. 40 years later, if Abraham had heard God's word and he said, no, I refuse to give you my son. Was God's declaration true? No. A righteous person would not respond that way. So Abraham's works proved God's declaration. This is why they go together. His living faith was proved by his works. Which brings us now to the verse, right? Verse 24, look with me. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is almost a word-for-word contradiction of Romans 3.28. You can look there yourself later. James says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But justify, what does it mean? Let's, well, let's try both definitions. You see that a person, let's go, let's go back, let's go back. Uh, you see that a person is, no, one more forward. There we were, there you go. You see that a person is declared righteous by works and not by faith alone. Well, that's clearly a contradiction, right? We, we can't go with that one. That just doesn't work. Okay, you see that a person is vindicated by works and not by faith alone. That might work. Let's explore that one a little bit. Maybe that definition. See, James is talking about a bogus faith. That's not the focus of Paul in Romans and some other New Testament writers. Paul is all about the declaration of righteousness in the court of God. James focuses on the demonstration of that righteousness before God in your life. Again, Paul, when he says you are justified by faith alone, he's talking about the declaration of God's righteousness. There is nothing you can do to earn God's declaration. But if that declaration is true, if that righteousness has been put in you, then it's going to get squeezed out of you throughout your life. And so that, James says, I want to see it. I want, those, I want that righteousness to declare, to, to demonstrate, excuse me, your righteousness. Okay, that's a nice bit of trivia. What are, we, what, what are we supposed to do with that, really? James is calling for integrity. He's calling for peace in your life. Faith alone does not mean bald faith. There is no severing of belief and your life in gospel living. Here's how we put it for the kids. Let's look at verse 24 for the boys and girls. It says this. You see, a person is proved to be righteous by their life and not just by what they believe. See, this is what the temptation is that we have to keep our faith private. It it causes a separation of faith and works, of beliefs and actions. And we Presbyterians are experts at it. We can quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism defining prayer, but we don't pray 
We can define God, he's a, but we don't know God as Father. Thanks be to God, though, that in the gospel, the gospel restores us in justification. We are declared and then empowered to demonstrate that righteousness. The work of Jesus heals this destructive separation in our lives that we all have. The gospel then makes us real, authentic people living out what we say we believe. We have integrity between word and deed, between faith and works. In Jesus, we can be the peaceful people we wish we were. Which then we land on finally verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. See, our bodies are dead without the spirit, so too our belief is dead without a changed life. Ultimately, it comes down to this. Here we go. Okay. We're out of the tedium now. We're out of the nitpicky. Let me give you a metaphor to help you out here. You ready? Ultimately, it comes down to this. Are we ghosts? Are we zombies? Or are we people? Now, stick with me. Ghost stories, super popular, been around forever. They arose from a Western culture saturating Christianity that absolute, and, and some Greek Gnosticism that absolutely believed in the reality of a supernatural world. We were all going there one day, someday, supernatural. In fact, most of them, because of Greek thought, thought the physical world was kind of a place of punishment and it was the place of dirtiness. And we want to be free from our physical world. And so we want to be spirits. Ghosts somehow missed the subway stop and got on a different track. But we're all going to be spirits someday. Now, in a post-Christian culture where supernatural isn't that big of a deal, we believe more in a materialistic universe. It's a big machine, and we don't really know if there's a supernatural. This world might be all there is. The ultimate horror is not being a ghost instead of a spirit. The ultimate horror is being somehow what makes you, you, ripped out, and you're just a body, a zombie. This is why zombie stories are everywhere. I mean, who would have thought that zombie stories would be everywhere, right? That's the horror. Okay, so where am I going with this? James asks this. Are you a ghost? Are you all about belief? Are you all about the ethereal stuff? Are you all about what you say, confessing, all that theology stuff with no works, no body to go with it? It's all about up here. You're just a ghost. Or are you a zombie? You're all about the works. You're all about doing stuff, but you don't actually have any theology or believing faith. It's just all about social service. Let's, let's, let's do good for our fellow man. Let's get in this. I don't care about what we believe. Let's just do this. It's a zombie. And maybe it's not that extreme. Maybe you're like me, and maybe you go back and forth throughout a given day. Yeah, as, as most of you know, this should not be a shock to any of you. This church is in transition. right? I, I, I am officially leaving as your pastor at the end of July to go to church planting. The way that our denomination does church planting is you can't move until you have raised, begged enough money to pay for your first year. So, most of the time, I'm good with that. I'm, I'm a professional beggar now. If I have been, have been for the past month, it's fine. It's great. So, and I'm okay with that. God started this mess. I'm looking to God to finish it. I'm, be, I, I, I'm believing and I'm trusting. Okay, I, I tend to be towards more ghostish. Some mornings I wake up though, I'm like, oh, I've got six people to feed and I'm like, losing an income in April and August. I'm freaking out. I got to go work harder. I got to do more, do more. That's zombie talk. Person talk says, God started this mess. I trust him. And so that should empower me to act and make more phone calls. You see the, you see the unification there? And you do this too, right? In temptation, 
Does, does your theology cause you to go to sloth sometimes? I've got to take care of it. It'll be okay. I don't have to evangelize. We're Presbyterians. We believe in predestination. Got to take care of it. That's ghost talk. Stop it. Or is it zombie talk? Man, I've got to brush up on my salesmanship. I've got I to get really slick in my presentation so I can convince these people. That's zombie evangelism. Don't do that. Instead, be a person who you take, I believe in God's sovereignty, so it's not up to me, but he had graciously said, I will use you in evangelism. It empowers me to go. That's a person. Ultimately, James is looking at a church full of ghosts and zombies and saying, be people in Jesus Christ. Because if not, a body apart from the Spirit's dead. You're a zombie. Faith apart from works is dead. You're walking around, praise God from, right? Don't do that. Be a doer of the word, demonstrating the new humanity Jesus is bringing with the gospel. See, Jesus gives us life. United to him, we can be made whole. And that's not just truths we agree with. That is the power of transformation that we live out. That's the gospel. Imagine being in a culture where that is everybody. No longer walking around a culture full of zombies and ghosts, but a culture where everybody's walking in integrity, where everybody says what they mean and then backs it up with action, where faith and works are united. What an incredible world. And that is the world that the gospel is bringing one day, someday. And James says we are supposed to be the appetizer of that world today. That's what it means to be a doer of the word. In a world full of zombies and ghosts, You shine like a person. And people want to know more about that. That's what it means. That are we justified strictly by faith? Depends on what you mean by justify, right? We are proved to be Christians by what we do, not just by what we say. That is the promise of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, having lived the life we're supposed to live, then dying the death we deserve to die, he unites us to him in our confession of faith, and he gives new life to us in his resurrection. He births us back to life. The gospel promises a renewed world with a new people. That sounds too good to be true, but you wish it were true. Just hold on to that desire for a better world. And hear the gospel promises that through the power of Christ, that world is coming. And for Christians, let me ask you real quickly as we, as we close. Are you demonstrating your faith in real life? Or are you comfortable with a very cognitive Christianity that doesn't really affect how you live? Even now, you can repent and believe the gospel. You can walk in integrity. And you can then take God's love to Orangeburg. Oh, let's pray he make it so. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. Your word that is sometimes difficult and hard to get through. Lord, we pray that you would scare us a little bit today with this text. That you would make us uncomfortable with this text. That we would wrestle in our hearts that What does it mean that we are justified by works and not by faith alone? Would you help us to submit to your word by applying it to our life? Would you make us doers of the word? Would you forgive us, Lord, for being hot air Presbyterian church? And would you make us, Lord, instead Trinity 
that goes to this community, Father, in tangible works of service and obedience unto you. And Lord, we pray for those here who do not know Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would draw people to yourself, that this idea of being an authentic, real person, living in integrity through Christ, we pray that you would use that to draw people to your Son, that they might confess him as the resurrected Lord. Now do your work of building your kingdom this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.